This episode is presented by Bon Bon, a neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, bringing Midwest flavors to international cuisine. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, bars, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Megan Elias, Elias? Megan Elias is um, the author of Food on the Page, Cookbooks in American Culture, as well as four other books on American history, American or food history. Um, her work explores the history of food and culture through food writing, markets, and home economics. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So in a review of Food on the Page, uh, Chef Alex Pradam wrote that cookbooks tell us who we are and who we aspire to be. So if that's the case, which cookbook defines you and your aspirations? <laughs> oh, that is a great one. Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, my aspirations and me. Um, I, you know, I mostly cook from websites these days. So I always, I'm always cooking from the New York Times pages, and I think that is where my aspirations are. I just want to grow, like, I just want to be Sam Sifton and know everything and everybody. Um, and so that's, that's probably the, the truth about me. Mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing about New York Times cooking is it feels more like you follow a certain personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, you find that the recipes you gravitate towards are by the same person. So it's yes. funny that you're a Sam Sifton and uh, oh, Melissa Clark, I worship mm. her. Yes, but it is you're right. It is very much a kind of guru setup, you know, that you find your your teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so w- we have, you know, like the um, New York Times bestselling cookbook list. Mm-hmm. And so, do you think we identify ourselves? Or we see ourselves in those lists? Oh yes, yeah, definitely. Um, we see ourselves in the books. You know, when we walk into the cookbook section in a bookstore, we gravitate to um often it, it seems I watch I actually watch people in cookbook sections in cook you know in bookstores to see what's going on um and people often now kind of gravitate to a problem right so like they they're not happy with their bodies when they eat wheat so they go into the gluten-free section or they have a gadget um so they're going into the instant pot section um occasionally people are just browsing through the kind of Um, you know, kind of general cookbook section. There's less, I think there's less now, less kind of obvious borders in that section. It used to be, you know, there's the French, there's the Italian, there's the Chinese. And in America, that was kind of everything you got, maybe a little Indian. But now those borders are much more open. And and when you're in that section, you don't know what the next book on the shelf is going to be. But I think definitely when we, when we're looking in a bookstore, when we're looking at those lists, we are looking for our next self. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's not just that what we eat becomes us, which is part of it, um, but that we present ourselves to the world through the cookbooks that we're, we're using or just, you know, that are lying around in our houses or that we're talking to people about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in Finding Our Next Self, is it that once we solve um, said problem, we achieve our next self? Or is it you are inhabiting fully this other cookbook author's life and aspirations? I think that's the dream, but never the reality. Um, so both, I think, you know, people, 
I, I would guess people move from problem to problem, that once you've worked your way through your gluten-free cookbook, then you say, okay, my life didn't actually get a million times better. What's next? And next I go to my milk-free cookbook or um, that you maybe, that you, you just, you follow through, you know, a trail through cookbooks that, that seem to solve problems. And then the other way of doing it is, um, you know, I want to be, this cosmopolitan person. And so I need to absorb all of the food from Otto Lenghi or, you know, all of the, whoever's the cool new person. Um, and partly that's just to be in the know, you know, so you can tell other people, you can use the language that other people will expect to hear if you're a smart person about food. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you think cookbook editors or publishing houses select cookbooks with that in mind to foster a continuing dependence um, because I feel like the popular language now is to like writing for the empowered home cook mm -hmm. right but then if you're telling me that it's just bouncing us from problem to problem then that seems to be not the case yeah I mean the, it, the business is booming and it, to keep it booming you can never give people the only cookbook they're ever going to need right um, and because we have the celebrity shelf culture that's not going to happen either there will always be a new star um, so it's very much like it's, it's, I think it's more like the movies than it is like, or more like TV than it is like fiction that, you know, the stars come and go um, and you follow them. You know, you get, you get your book, you know them, you cook a little, then you move on to the next one. Um, I'm wondering about, specifically about that and the Marie Kondoizing of America, what cookbooks are we going to be finding in the Goodwill now? Because um, I know people are going to be clearing their, cook, their bookshelves, which makes me scared. Um, and so I think it'll be really, you know, really interesting to see what the, you know, to watch those stacks, right? What shows up on the secondhand lists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of secondhand, um, you opened the book Food on the Page with an anecdote about picking oh, yeah. up the Fanny Farmer <laughs> book. Can you share that with the listeners? Yes. Um, so I'm, I, Fanny Farmer has been part of my life as long as I can remember. My mother had a nice Fanny Farmer cookbook that she used. She was an immigrant. Um, who was interested in American food and kind of getting it right and raising me to um, sort of know what American food was in her own version. So she used it, and then I moved away from home, and, um, you know, she had to keep her cookbooks. So I was at, a, I think it was a flea market, um, and I found this really nice-looking, to me, really nice-looking Fanny Farmer cookbook. It was gold-covered, and it was pretty beat up, and it was from 1950, uh, and it just, I just needed it. And I took it home, and it had some notes in it, and it had uh, it had really been used and loved. And it had this, there's a recipe for custard that has a note next to it that just says, no. <laughs> and I love that the, you know, when you get a, you get an, an insight into somebody speaking to themselves about their future use of the cookbook. My mother's cookbooks are full of those things now. I have them. Um, and then I, I realized as I was using the book that I was also making my own notations. And so there's this recipe for this thing I used to make all the time um, called Denver chocolate pudding, which is kind of like a cake, kind of like a pudding. And if you look at that page, it's so disgusting because it's just, <laughs> it has a splotch, like a blob on the bottom of chocolate. And then the inside the spine is all sugar <laughs> and cocoa powder. It's really gross. I don't know how cookbooks um, survive that way. <laughs> and, that, you know, and, and if somebody picked this up years from now, they wouldn't know who I was, but they would know that I was a really messy cook and I really liked that recipe. Mm -hmm. So you write that cookbooks are full of words about food, but they don't tell us necessarily how people eat. So what do you mean by this? Well, so we know we know that these are these are 
the, the, the concepts and the materials in cookbooks are things that the author can assume the readers are somewhat familiar with. Unless there's a, you know, sometimes you find a big long list at the back of how to how to find these uh, these um, these rare, you know, um, materials to to cook with. Mater Joffrey had that in her beginning in her first books, but they so they tell us what the language of food is at the time, but they don't tell us what people are actually cooking in their houses. Um, you know, there's no direct evidence unless you have somebody's journal and they're saying I cooked this recipe from Julia Child or I cooked this today uh, and. You know, as you've talked about on, I'm sure, on many episodes, people haven't considered cooking in the domestic sphere important enough to record. Um, there have been some federally funded studies of what people really eat over the years, but it's not, they're not widespread, they're not multicultural usually, they're, um, they even sometimes don't really cross class because they're often interested in what, what people who don't have a lot of money can feed themselves. So. We don't know a lot about really what people ate, but I think that that doesn't mean that cookbooks aren't really, really important, that they're telling, um, they're telling us a lot about what people think about food um, and what they think about the edible world around them too. Mm. And for that, I, I love them. You know, I think we have to find other ways of figuring out what people ate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in reading um, what your, your history of cookbooks, it seemed that people turned to cookbooks to kind of flex intellect or yes. um, economic muscle. Yeah. So why is it important to understand what people are eating in those in-between times? Hmm. Um, well, partly for the, 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 the difference is really interesting too, right? If you're reading about Lobster Newberg, but you're only ever making roast chicken, there's an interesting world in there, like there's a fantasy world that has to do with places you've never been and flavors you're never going to taste. So that becomes part of your life. And I really, I like your use of the word intellectual. I think that what we're kind of missing is, is like an intellectual history of food uh, in America. Intellectual historians do not involve themselves with food at all or with women for the most part, unless women have written books of philosophy. Um, so I think we really need to turn towards thinking about, about, write about words about food um, and how they do and don't intersect with behavior about food. So if, you know, if a cookbook is telling everybody, you know, this is how you cook something and nobody's cooking that thing, it, it's sort of like fantasy fiction, right? It tells us about dreams that we have that we can't fulfill. And I think that space in between dream and fulfillment is, is, is really tells you a lot about the world, right? What's What's the shape of the society? Mm -hmm. So you have the New York Times cooking app, right? So to me, browsing that feels so much like browsing Instagram, where I save a lot of things that I have no intention of making, but yeah. it's kind of like this fantasy, right? Yes. So do you think that is our modern day equivalent of um, this example with the cookbooks? Yeah, very much. And our and our, our equivalent of gourmet too, right, which is dead now, but that that was a place where people could look at pictures of food that they were never going to make, but that they loved knowing about. They loved knowing that they knew about it. Um, there's a lot of the, the pleasure of connoisseurship that's involved in thinking and writing about food and Instagramming about food. Um, and, that, and that just that impulse, I think, is also a kind of understudied part of culture, the, the desire to, to be knowledgeable um, publicly about something and, and it happens so much in food so across class across culture in a way that it doesn't with art right not that many people talk about differences amongst abstract painters you know yeah why do you think that is 
um, why people don't talk about art or um, why people are more <laughs> inclined to have strong opinions about food and yeah. claim to know a lot about food. Because everybody believes that food and culture are connected. They, they believe that culture is expressed through food. Um, and they believe that they, I mean, even I think they, this is something that people believe unconsciously that they're, they express something when they choose a food. Um, definitely when you Instagram it, you're telling somebody something, you're telling the world something through your food. Um, and everybody has a claim to that, right? Everybody's grandma has a specialty um, or everybody, you know, has a burger they really love at a particular place, right? It's not, it's something that everybody has some kind of access to. Um, and even if it's, even if it's food trouble, right? I always think back to Dorothy Allison's memoir and the, and the meals that she remembers eating that were just the bare minimum her mom could get on the table with, but the, with the feeling that she was feeding her family. And, you know, it was saltines with ketchup, I think, was what it was. But it was, it was an expression, right? Her mother was saying, I'm feeding you guys with those crackers and, and ketchup. Um, and they might, those things might be dismissed as not proper, you know, not real food um, in any way. But they were, <laughs> you know, they, mm -hmm. fed, they fed the kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talked about um, expressing yourself through an image of food. And I asked this question, I think, on every episode, okay. but still have not gotten an answer I'm satisfied with. But um, a great example, I feel like, is pizza pictures here, oh, where yeah. everyone takes the same exact pictures of the same iconic Roberta's right. Pizza against the wood table and the wood background um, with or without their dining partner. And what does that achieve for the um, the person taking the picture, oh, but yeah. also the community they share it with to have totally. the same exact photo? Right. It's like when you your friend posts a picture of themselves at the Eiffel Tower. It's an, I made it. I got there, right? Mm -hmm. I got to the famous pizza. I knew that it was famous. I um, knew that you guys would know what it was when I posted it. So it's like a acknowledgement to the crowd that they know um, what the, they have, the, it's a currency, right? It's mm -hmm. my way of saying I'm in the know. And it doesn't take a lot of, this is what I love about cultural capital, right? It is, it doesn't actually take that much actual capital to have cultural capital. And that's, I think that's another way of answering the question about why everybody can speak through food mm -hmm. and everybody knows they can speak through food. You know, even if what they want to say is, oh, we don't go for that fancy stuff. You know, that's still a really strong statement about what you do and don't do. Because mm -hmm. it, it almost implicit in that is like, we've been there. We don't care for yes. it, but this is what we choose instead. Yeah, it's the knowing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, what really intrigues me always about anything I write about in food is about knowing this like community, creating communities who know and, communi and then the implied community who doesn't know. I mean, I think ultimately one thing I'm obsessed with untangling is snobbism, right? And I, I don't know why I'm so... How would you define that? Because I feel like that has multiple layers. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, essentially, I think it's that I'm better because I know something that you don't know. And that's all it boils down to mm -hmm. and why that should be so intriguing. Um, I guess it's, it's the ultimate, you know, knowledge is power thing, but I like it on the small scale. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we talk a lot on the show about how food trends are created, and um, because I am lucky to speak with a lot of people that work in the industry, they believe that they are the ones creating the food trends. Um, do you think it's the diners or the ones with the dollars creating the trends, or vice versa? Oh, everybody. Yeah, I don't think any any fashion or any trend can be created without audience. Um, and there's audience signals subtly what they're up for and what they'll take on and what they won't. Um, and... Uh, and then 
you know, geniuses respond subtly to what they sense is possible and then go for it. And often, you know, there are failures that just don't get repeated, so nobody knows um, about them. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't think, you know, in a, in something that's so directly consumed immediately, it's really hard to be really far ahead of your time. You know, like, um, I went to the show, the Hilma Alf Klint show at the Guggenheim, and her beautiful paintings that nobody saw, and everybody agrees, like, she was doing wonderful genius things ahead of her time. But you can't really do that with food, because it's gone, you know? So you, you really have to be responsive in the moment to make a trend. So with what we were talking about, gluten-free and dairy-free, what were the kind of sneaking glimmers that may have given us away to this trend, or oh, given away gosh. this trend? I wonder. Um, well, there was before gluten-free, there was a fear of carbs, definitely. So bread was already an enemy, mm-hmm. and you could just find another, another reason for it to be an enemy. Um, that, I don't know exactly. I think I'm not tuned in enough to health discourses to know. Um, but I, it also... It, it might, you know, it might be have had to do with the, um, uh, what is it, the, um, like the resurgence in home bread baking, mm. you know, around the time of the no-need bread that everybody loves. Mm-hmm. Then people started, regular people started talking about gluten in a way that they hadn't so much before. What does gluten do and how does it work if you leave it overnight? Um, and that's sort of simultaneous with the fear of gluten, too. So... Yeah, I don't know how it came in as a hero and a, and a villain at the same time. Mm-hmm. And do you see, what do you foresee for 2019? What do you oh, think I never new? know. <laughs> I always tell people that I foresee that we'll be eating dirt, like fancy, fancy dirt. But it hasn't happened yet, so I should probably stop talking <laughs> I mean, about it. I've seen pictures of it on right? the internet, right? It's like there. Okay, pickles good. buried in dirt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was yeah. like fake dirt, things that looked like dirt, but I think... I, I, you know, I always joke about this with my students when we talk about the concept of terroir, that like, well, shouldn't you just be eating the dirt of France if it's so great? You know, um, and they always say no. <laughs> so I don't I don't prognosticate so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it easier to identify cookbook trends? You identify some in your book and if you could give a little history. Yeah, looking back um, was really interesting. There were things I thought I would see that I didn't see. Um, and then a lot, like I, I had this, I was trying to trace the history of American cookbooks in terms of how the language about American food changed and also what the big trends were. And then to kind of try to figure out what, that, what those trends were saying about culture and society. And uh, that's a big job I gave myself. But I thought that because uh, the 20th century was often referred to as the American century in art and culture, that I would find American cookbooks that were pitched to a global audience, specifically a European audience, and I really didn't find that happening very much. Um, I found a lot of self-loathing about American food in American cookbooks, and that, um, that almost took over my book because it was so interesting to me. And then a lot, you know, Francophilia, I knew I would find a lot of that. But I found it much earlier than I thought it would be there. But not it's not eternal, right? So there's, around the 19th century, fancy cooking has some French sort of words in it. But it's not entirely French. It always has American ingredients, special turtles and special ducks that you can only get um, in the Mid-Atlantic. 
um, dishes that were really specific to American food culture. And, and sometimes they were in, the words were French, and French menus, but not always French stuff on the menus. Uh, and then I found a turn towards France after the First World War, which again, right, that's like when our writers are going to France and um, idolizing French culture. And so that seemed to begin to be happening in cookbooks too. And, and that's another reason it's important to think of food writing as intellectual history, right? Um, and I found it as a lot of the love of French food was a, this idealization, valorization of a kind of French woman who probably never existed. Um, and then she's set up as an opposite to the American woman cook. There's a lot of misogyny in these cookbooks. You've probably had other people talk about that. Um, but just this total dismissal of American women, both as cooks and as arbiters of food, right? That the, the women of the home economics movement, that their approach to food was, um, was anti-pleasure, which is not true at all if you actually look in the cookbooks. But this idea of the home economist who wants people to not enjoy food um, becomes really prevalent after the First World War. And I, I don't know if it's a reaction to, I mean, maybe I do know, it's a bit of a reaction to women taking more of a role in public life that happens during the First World War and um, remains after the war. So a, a backlash against women as, um, again, as having any kind of useful knowledge about food. American women, mm. but then this idealized French woman who's this kind of, this housekeeper, right? No, no pretensions to career, any kind of intellectual development. She just lives to feed her family and, um, you know, American visitors, essentially. So I think a, a, a wish to return to something that, that, that was never real anyway. Mm -hmm. So you also write about home economics, which is it kind of a uniquely American feel to study? Because I remember there you were talking about how um, it was a popular class in school and then yeah. people would be donning science codes, so it was kind of scientific to yeah. make it more serious. Yeah, it was. It started in America. It had a version in England as well. And then after the Second World War, it was exported um, as part of the Marshall Plan. So you find it popping up in the Philippines and in Japan and in some cases in Europe, too, as part of the American um, reconstruction process, which somebody has to write about that. I think it's really interesting. Um, so originally, it was a movement that was started by women uh, to understand the domestic environment using the latest science. So given that they had been raised with the expectation that they belonged to this particular sphere, but also in a time, turn of the century America, when women actually had access to pretty good public education through the state universities. So they could achieve scientific training, but they also had this long history of being tied to the to domestic things. To, be, to put it more sort of maybe more believably or something, that they had a responsibility for the domestic. And so they wanted to apply their, their new scientific knowledge to that responsibility. Uh, and a lot of the things that early home economists did, I think, would really fascinate people today. They were interested in bacteriology, so understanding the bacteria of everyday life. People talk about endlessness, right? Like gut health and all that. Um, and in family relationships, they were interested in family psychology and um, in self-sufficiency, too. So there's a lot of 
wonderful stuff about that's quite anti-consumerist. You know, take what you have and repurpose it. Um, take your, you know, when you're buying food, buy it intelligently so that you can use all of it. Uh, and know, you know, what are recipes that you can use more of um, cheaper things. So really uh, a, a reaction to the um, growing consumerism in the early 20th century and a, and an, a movement to try to keep people smart um, which pretty much lost out as far as I can tell. I mean, myself as a shopper in <laughs> a supermarket, I'm not using my, I don't have any home ec training. Maybe that's the problem. Would the woman taking these classes come in with already the knowledge of basic cooking and they just wanted to apply a scientific lens over it? Or is it just like a building from the ground up, a new way of approaching cooking? Most of the students would have had some kind of cooking experience with their mothers. Okay. Um, it's not till the 50s when that might have changed a little bit. There's a funny period in American history when middle-class women didn't really cook. Um, and then they had to because the servants that they used to hire can have better jobs. So there's this thing you've probably heard of when people talk about the servant crisis, which is, no, okay, so like late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, um, women were always complaining about, middle class, upper middle class women were complaining about the servant crisis and we can't get any good servants and you get one and you can't keep her and what the hell is wrong with these girls? Um, and you know, what the other side of it is increasingly good opportunities for women in the workforce, mm -hmm. better jobs for women. And nobody apparently wants to work in somebody else's kitchen if they can do anything else, which I think is really telling. So um, that's when middle class women begin to have to cook for their families mm. and really do the cooking and not just tell somebody else what they want. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is presented by Bon Bon, a neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, bringing Midwest flavors to international cuisine. Bon Bon is a place for friends and neighbors to come together and enjoy good food and good company. The heart of Bon Bon is filled with love for the community of Lawrence, Kansas, for the staff and suppliers that put food on the tables, for quality local ingredients, and for fun creative dishes. Learn more at bonbonlawrence.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. So we were talking about the quote-unquote American century um, and how you discovered there's a lot of self-loathing and instead of this huge celebration of American nationalism. Um, so what is up with the persistent belief that there is no American cuisine? Oh, yeah. Um, I think the problem there is that the idea of cuisine is just fundamentally French. So when we come up with, when anybody uses the word cuisine to begin with, they're talking about France and they're talking about a set of rules and a set of dishes, which I think also doesn't apply to France, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a French food historian. Um, but just knowing what I, the little I know about the cultural diversity of France, I don't think there's such a thing in France either. 
But uh, the problem with the U.S. is it doesn't, it clearly doesn't have one culture. It's multiple cultures and everybody's eating everything so that you can't say, yeah, we have one set of dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, when people did, rec- when they tried to think about what was, the, what was common to a lot of people, what, you know, what is a food that everybody, they would say, knows about, the things they could come up with were hamburgers and hot dogs and Coke. And that didn't seem like it couldn't be your cuisine. But what if it is? You know, so either way, I think the problem was a problem of concept rather than a problem of what's out there. I don't, who needs a cuisine anyway, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, you only need a cuisine if you're sort of, you need to judge your cuisine against somebody else's cuisine. Mm-hmm. Or you need to teach somebody how to, you know, how to make everything in this cuisine. And when is that ever possible in the world or, or desirable? So you are one of the few writers writing about the history of cookbooks, and why have cookbooks not been taken so seriously historical texts? Because it's women's work and women's writing, and that's for so long has not been taken seriously. Um, and because it's something that happens every single day, which should make it really important, but makes it unimportant. Um, it's the quotidian, uh, and so, you know, so much of the quotidian is not taken seriously, and I would argue should be. Um, it's... It has a lot also to do with, it's subjective often, right? It has to do with personal feelings and personal um, pleasure. And that's, again, that's, that's on the wrong side of the um, reason-emotion dichotomy that's always made in intellectual circles. So it, it has a lot, you know, food has a lot of strikes against it. Mm-hmm. So how would you compare and contrast something like art history versus food studies? Why does art history have so much more theory and yeah. like a more, you know, structure, maybe even higher class? Yes, definitely. Um, I think it has to do a lot with the, the permanence. So it's hard to make something serious that's ephemeral. Uh, and that, you know, now in the contemporary art scene where we have so many more people doing um, you know, site-specific art and performance-based art. I think that's art history is going to have to, and art criticism has to catch up to that. To the, how do you judge the ephemeral? Um, so I, I think that's probably a big part of it. Also, the, um, the collectability of art, the value on the market. You know, that that a painting can become more and more expensive as time goes on, and when something is expensive, it seems important to our mm-hmm. society at least. And you know, once that pizza out there is eaten. It doesn't matter how much it costs. It should almost seem that cookbooks <laughs> should then kind of gain, yeah, you know, meaning and worth over time. And some do, yeah. Um, and and now I think we are we're beginning to see that very old cookbooks are very expensive, uh, but you know you can still get a lot of the books that I think are really important for very little money, mm-hmm. and they're mass produced. They were meant to be used and meant to be splattered on and. Um, pages turned and they, they weren't they, cookbooks except for that modernist cuisine weren't created to be looked at for the most part for mm-hmm. a long time now they are now they're works of art mm-hmm. yeah so to speak to that actually um, it seems that the current trend is to just have huge pictures of very nice looking raw vegetables all over cookbooks and what does that say about us and what we want right mm-hmm. now yeah um that really intrigued me, and I had to figure out why it was happening. Um, it, I think, so this is my argument, I think it comes out of an innovation in printing technology, visual print, printing technology that happened in the 1980s, 
uh, that made it possible for a picture to look beautiful longer. So if you look back at cookbooks before the 80s, the, the colors have faded and the food then looks quite yucky. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to create a picture of food that, that lasts longer and to sort of to saturate a page with color was a new technology. And once that becomes possible, then I think that really changes what you want to take pictures of. Because a big radish, like a big picture of a radish, can be can kind of fit into our understanding of what's artistic, you know, like a still life. But a picture of a pot of stew is less it's less aesthetically pleasing in a way. You know, if you think of just like looking at a bowl of chili, the finished product is not necessarily as beautiful as the raw material in the case of food. But I don't know if that's, that may just be an aesthetic. Um, I think it's an aesthetic trend and it coincides with Alice Waters really perfectly, right? So this ability to take a picture of a perfect peach comes right at, out at the same moment that you have this woman saying there's nothing more perfect than a peach you know don't cook it don't mess with it just worship it mm -hmm. yeah it's almost also that um a picture of a radish is more timeless than a picture of a stew and that you know it will it probably will look the same um for years to come yeah yeah so how much of our taste is really our own versus um kind of manufactured in us <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I'm so cynical and I would say everything is culturally manufactured, mm -hmm. that you have some taste buds, but they get trained early to like what your parents say you should like, or if you're, you know, pigheaded to not like what your parents say you should like. Yeah. Um, so after I read uh, a bit of your book, um, I had for weeks been thinking about blood oranges and blood orange cake mm. and then I realized that Amazon was advertising blood oranges or <laughs> blood orange olive oil to me and Whole Foods was advertising and so I was thinking oh my god do I even care about this or is someone else telling me to make right, this right. Um, yeah so let's go back to your book um, you actually start way back in 1796 and so what did food media or slash mm. trends look like then um, you write about Amelia Simmons mm -hmm. and what yeah. do they yeah what do they look so, like then um, food trends then, we only know what the food trends were at this point for the, the wealthy, um, people who had staff cooking for them. Um, we know that they uh, had multi-course meals, that they were um, somewhat in the tradition of the great English cooking, the big country houses, um, and that there were, you know, there would be many courses, um, rich food, but we, we don't know, we don't know if there were trends at the street level yet. Those are hard to find, but I would suspect that they were there. We know that as uh, new groups of immigrants arrived, they introduced food to everybody else um, and people pick up those, those flavors and they, you know, um, think about like hot dogs, right? That, that once Germans are here, they, they're gonna be selling sausages on the street and that, that'll be a food trend but not seen as a food trend because it's not upper, you know, upper level mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but um, the target reader of cookbooks has changed very much over time. So what was it back yeah. then? What is it now? Um, so the target reader was, the, was a woman of a very wealthy household who read for ideas and then communicated the ideas to her illiterate cook. In the South, that meant communicating those ideas to an enslaved cook who was cooking because she was physically forced to do so. So that dynamic 
is really complex. So the food that comes out of that um, world, which is then really kind of still celebrated as this fabulous cuisine of the South, um, has a really troubling history to it. Not much different in the North, though cooks had the ability to quit, and they did all the time, uh, if they didn't like the women they worked for. But you had to, if you were the cook, you had to cook to somebody else's understanding of a book that you couldn't read, which I think there were there was probably a lot of slippage in there, a lot of, and again, this is why we don't, we can't say that what's in the cookbook is what turned up on the table, because there's that, all of that translation going on. Um, and one of the things I would love to try to do is, if I could time travel, is to go into a kitchen in the mid-19th century and just see that interaction between cook and uh, housewife, right? Yeah, you also, um, you talked about how uh, women from the East, when they were migrating West, would bring these cookbooks of, you know, beloved home-cooked dishes so they could still have those dishes while they were in yeah. the West. But I would imagine it's so difficult to then translate not only food memory, but this random recipe, right, to someone mm -hmm. that doesn't know or isn't familiar with the flavors. So Yeah, it doesn't have your food culture at all. Mm -hmm. So part of the, the big um, crisis, the, the serving crisis, was that kind of Anglo-Americans were hiring Irish women to cook for them. And these Irish women had a completely different food tradition than the women who they were working for. So there's a lot of conflict there, um, you know, also made worse by the fact that women are everywhere in the world tasked with knowing how to cook. So those Irish women know that they know how to cook because their mothers told them how to cook and they learned. And then there's this woman who's telling them they don't know how to cook. So it's, it's a, the kitchen's work sources of or sites of conflict mm -hmm. north and south west and east you know they were not peaceful zones yeah you write that uh quote-unquote foodways is a very food studies term and so mm -hmm. can you kind of use that in, <laughs> in further complicating yes um yeah somebody asked me about that two days ago and i couldn't get a good one sentence answer foodways are the ways that we deal with food right um and so those are shaped by our culture they're shaped by our environment, they're shaped by technologies available to us. They're what we do with food. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about um, food trends earlier and how you actually believe that it's a little bit of everybody. Um, what I've been kind of noticing is that it seems that there is, I mean, I guess it's across disciplines, but there is a trend created at the quote unquote high culture and then it descends too <laughs> low. And so can you give an example of this and why? Hmm. Do you, you think it's positive true? that happens? I think so. I feel like yeah. um, so the one I always come back to, and I don't know why, is I feel like like the Southwest chicken salad, uh -huh. right? I feel like at one point that might have arose from the slow food movement, where it's like an interest in just being super organic and fresh right. and Californian, right? And then it's now on every airplane <laughs> menu. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, and that's that's part of the whole culture of connoisseurship. Right, that you, that there are trends in food, and that there are people who follow them. I mean, there's a whole industry of people whose job it is to find out what um, is being cooked at the most expensive restaurant in New York and figure out how to get that eventually onto the airplane. So there's a now that's that's all intentional, I think. Um, and they try things that fail constantly. I'm doing some research on a woman who lived in this. Her was really active in the 70s and 80s, who was a food editor and a food writer and a uh, trend predictor. And she has these all these predictions, some of which turned out to be right and some of which are so wrong that, but you can kind of see why she had that thought. What would she do with these predictions? Oh, she worked for big uh, food companies. Okay. Would she try to implement them or was she just... She was just supposed to 
give them a lot of ideas, and then, it, like General Mills was one of her uh, clients, and then if they liked an idea, they'd go back to her and say, okay, develop this, see if you can develop this for mm-hmm. us. This fascinating world, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and I, I mean, I, I, I'm sure Instagram is helping spread ideas more organically in a way, right, to use a food term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what is this idealized version of cooking and living that we see in cookbooks and Instagram? Oh, it's um, it's the easy life. It's you always have time to do it. It's it's calm. It's fulfilling. It often involves you connecting with your loved ones in a way that I don't think happens for most of us at five thirty on a Wednesday night. But that's our dream. It's it's. At the moment, it's really entwined with the mythology of the nuclear family. Whether that's, you know, heterosexual or or not, it's still the idea that you have this unit that's a family unit and that they have a meaningful connection around food. Um, And that's incredibly problematic (laughs) because it doesn't doesn't work for everybody. Uh, But it's, I think that one of the biggest themes in in cookbooks is that that notion of of calm and connection that should be happening in the kitchen. And if it's not, you're doing it wrong, right? You can so do this in half an hour. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up, um, your epilogue is titled What We Should Read for Dinner. Um, What are your (laughs) recommendations right now? What are my recommendations? Hmm. Um, I don't know if I eat like everybody else does. (laughs) Um, I, my recommendation would be to eat whatever you feel like. <laughs> oh, no, what, we should read for dinner. Oh, read yeah, for dinner. easier, oh, slightly easier That question. is so much easier. <laughs> yes. Um, actually, there is a new book about family dinners that we should all read. Um, it is called, oh, no, of course I'm going to blank on it now. It's by Seneca Elliott, and it is about, it's a sociologist study of the family meal and why it isn't practical for a lot of people and mm. what to do about that. I couldn't get you the title later. Yeah, no, that's a, a perfect way to wrap up. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fair, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.